Hey everyone, it's Katie and Tisa with Tur Hearts and Hooves, Turquoise and Trauma, and we have a really special guest today. Her name is Dr. Julie Sandvig, and she is an assistant professor of occupational therapy with the University of Mary. So Julie, can you give us just a little background about yourself? Yes, and please call me Julie. Um, I am an occupational therapist. I mostly work in pediatrics and I am a, an assistant professor at UMary. Um, this is my fourth year being a teacher here and I have done a little bit of research with you, Katie and TR for Heart and Soul. And so I just, I love the science behind all of it. So I just love talking about it so much and that's a little bit about me. I'm married and have two little kids under two years old, and I have a husband and a dog. Mm, that's awesome. But your dog is in the process of becoming a certified therapy dog. Am I not mistaken? Yes, she is um, over halfway done with her love on a leash certification. And so I get to take her to nursing homes and I get to take her to school and she gets to just be pet by so many people and she brings joy to people. So I love animals. I love that. Well, Dr. Sandvig, but I know you prefer to be called Julie. Yes. We just have a few questions. Um, the first one is uh, Tisa and I, and through the work that we've done, we've kind of lived out horses healing trauma, but we want to know, first of all, how you define trauma and what trauma looks like in your lens. Yeah, so because I'm an occupational therapist, um, we're more in the line of trauma-informed care. And so what that means is we have to have an awareness of patients that we work with that have trauma. So the way that my profession and I would like to define it as is an individual's response to extreme stress that overwhelms their capacity to cope. So something um, that will really overwhelm an individual. And from some of the research that I have looked into, by age 16, more than two-thirds of children and adolescents report at least one traumatic event. Wow. And that comes in a different levels as far as a person. Like maybe one person can handle, you know, witnessing something terrible. Maybe their parents fighting or something and they they maybe don't characterize that as trauma or their body doesn't, but the next person would. Is that yeah. how trauma works? It's individual. Yeah, yeah it's very individualized. Um, the CDC started to put together what's called the ACEs study. Have you guys heard of that? Nope, I haven't. I, yeah, we do at TF Heart and Soul, we do quite a bit of work with the ACEs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what ACE means is adverse childhood experience. And so what they look at is the kiddo that they're going to study um, as far as, you know, their trauma and that impact, they will ask them questions related to if they've had any emotional, physical, sexual abuse, neglect, um, if they've had divorce in their family, if they've had a parent that has had substance abuse, if there's mental illness within the family, um, if any of their family members have been in prison. And so um, at the end of it, a kiddo will come out with like a specific number and that's their ACE score. 
And so obviously a higher ACE score means they've had more traumatic events in their lives. Um, and then they want to really use data with that to correlate if the higher the ACE score means they're going to be more likely to have maybe substance abuse or mental health challenges when they grow up. And so um, the CDC and a lot of statewide organizations are collecting a lot of data on this. That's incredible. I, I think some horses need ACE scores. Being a horse <laughs> trainer, that, yeah. If we could get that from clients. So how do you, have you saw horses in your field with the studies you've done with Katie help with these ACE um, individuals? Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, Katie and I did a pilot study this past year with four of my grad students and all of them um, worked with, we had a, a group of young women that were adolescents that all had um, pretty high ACE scores. They were um, at-risk youth where they had a lot of trauma in their past, and we used horses um, under the lens of natural lifemanship and um, some of those concepts with these ladies. And so we had these horses um, with these adolescent girls and they got to hang out with the horses for about six weeks. And oh my goodness, we saw a ton of change in these kids. It was wonderful. What are top three particular things you noticed just off the top of your head? Um, well, we did a pre post test study. So we did see a lot of increase in confidence and we do have the data to back that up. Um, we also saw improvements in emotional regulation and just overall problem solving um, with these gals. So it was really cool. We do actually have the numbers to back it um, because it was just five students though in the study. Um, it's not something that could be you know, used to say this is the perfect thing and this works, but it's a good pilot study for us to keep doing what we're doing. Where Definitely. do you think these students, um, not not the university students, but the students that came for the research study, where do you think they would be without that interaction with horses? I think a lot of them would really struggle. I think that um, the horses just brought such a, a nice, unique way for them to relate to each other. And you remember these gals, Katie, they were they were fun. They were, some of them were very closed off and just to see them light up when they saw the horse that they were working with, um, was really nice to see. Cause a lot of them were probably, um, really struggling, especially in school with like friendships and stuff. And so to see them do something that they love with a horse was just really cool to see. So question for both you ladies, mm -hmm. how did you use the horse if they were closed up? and um, not talking about certain things or what, whatever. How did you use the horse as your communication line? I think, um, Julie, you can correct me if we're wrong. We really had to assess the students. We had an outline, but we really had to assess the students every day and kind of meet them where, we, where they were. And both of us have worked with peds. And when I say peds, I mean under the age of 18 for quite a while so we understood like when to add rhythm for regulation mm -hmm. when to take it away and we always 
went back to the relationship as a real relationship with the horse rather than a metaphor. Like this relationship is real. And how can we use the skills that you built in this relationship to better outside relationships, maybe at home, maybe at school, uh, you know, kind of anywhere. Yeah. And we, you know, the girls we worked with had a lot of reverence for their horses. They like adored their horses and seemed to not really want to make their horses mad. And so, um, kind of to go back to some of like the theory and stuff behind this. Um, even if we're like talking about psychology, um, have you heard of Erickson's stages of development? I'm guessing Katie has. I actually have, I kind of researched it a little bit okay. in my life, but you um, elaborate for us. Yeah. So um, he was a psychologist and his theory was um children have to kind of get through each phase of development in order to get to the next one. And so um, when kiddos are really young, like infant to 18 months, they go through this period of trust versus mistrust. So what that means is um, when they're a baby and they cry, do they have their needs met? Does their parent give them food? That kind of thing. Um, and so then if they get through that where, you know, their needs have been met, then they have, you know, a good trust with um, their caregivers. But a lot of kiddos that have had um, trauma behind, you know, what when they've grown up and stuff, they can't get past that trust versus mistrust. And so what they end up being is, you know, in this state of I can't trust anyone, especially humans. And so. Um, if their abuser has been a male, let's say, if they go to school and their teacher is a male, um, in their brain, they just feel like, oh, I can't trust any males. And so um, with that, we know that, you know, the kiddos that we've worked with do not have a history of getting um, abused by a horse, you know, or hurt by a horse, right? And so they don't have that really instant feeling of mistrust when they see a horse, um, versus when they see a human. And so what we worked on is really just learning how to build a relationship with a horse. And hopefully that will kind of lead into gaining trust in safe people that they're around. And so we did a lot with like body language. What does our body language look like when we trust someone? What does the horse's language look like? And so Working on that with a horse really was a nice way to build up their confidence in that relationship mind because it didn't work with humans. And you know, I think something of, that, oh, go ahead, Tisa. Oh, just one crazy thought. Um, just being a horse trainer and having dealt with horses on the other side of this, the reciprocal mm -hmm. of this, when I'm training horses that have been possibly abused I can I can sense it in their stages they kind of have the same cycle they have to go through I and know. and it's it boils down to trust and time and that communication you have to take as a trainer so horses are on that level when they've been abused they're you know they're a living breathing being with feel just as the riders are yeah and what crazy What's pretty powerful kind of joining those two conversations is that a horse by nature, they're a prey animal. They, and we're humans are a predator, but they've 
They've learned to trust us. They've learned to forgive us for our mistakes. And, but they're always going to function in a little different brain space than you or I. They're, the bottom part of their brain is really, really heavy. And they're always kind of functioning in that brain. So I'm like, how do I stay safe? Do I, am I going to fight, flight, or freeze? And humans, um, especially youth who have experienced a lot of trauma, their brain functions just like that in the horse. They're not able to really access their limbic system quite as much. So it's really, really relatable. And one exercise that we did at the very beginning that was pretty powerful is we let the horses be at liberty. So people that aren't um, used to horses. Yeah. So they were in the pasture um, living in the natural world of a horse. And we talked about their behaviors. So the students got to choose a horse that they related with. And it was interesting um, on who they chose. We had one horse that, you know, was missing an eye. And one of our, I kind of told them a little bit about the horses afterwards. And one of the most sought after TR for heart and soul horses wasn't picked, but we put some grain out and that horse was kind of a boss mare and nobody wanted to relate with that horse. No one wanted to be the bully. So I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. That is, I was actually going to ask that question. If you did turn out each individual and they got to, you know, maybe sense a horse that they wanted to be united with Mm -hmm. and how that comes to be, because not everybody fits every horse. Like, you know, I was saying, but that's awesome. So Julie, um, I know we're, we're derailing a little bit because we could talk about that all day, but how have horses in particular benefited your health and relationships and your development as a teacher? What can you say about that? I just think that they've, they've helped me build connections in my work. Um, I love this collaboration that I've been able to have with Katie. And so that's just benefited me so much. And just being out there, um, you know, the sensory rich environment of being with a horse is so wonderful. I just, I just love it so much. I just always feel good when I'm around a horse. And um, I love to share that experience with as many people as I can. So the students that got to go out there and do this project, um, I think they benefited so much too, just being out there with the horses and Katie. So it's just made me happier. Bottom line. I have two. <laughs> well, right questions. now, I want to. I want to thank both of you right now for making that difference in people's lives and realizing it. I think you two just need a thank you because oh. <laughs> that is. This is so great what you're doing. So great beyond words. Julie, when you say, could you explain? to our listeners maybe what you mean by sensory rich environment because I know that as a volunteer outside Mm -hmm. of the work with the University of Mary you've seen kiddos that would maybe be maybe be a typical clinic kiddo and Mm kind of what their outlook looked like because of a different sensory environment. Yeah so I do a lot with the kiddos that I work with with sensory integration and that's really what I love to talk about. It's kind of tricky to explain. And so the way that I explain it is, you know, we know we have all of those five senses that we um, can talk about sight, smell, taste, hearing, 
um, touch, those kinds of things. But sensory is a little bit more than that. We also have what we call the proprioceptive system. So that's where we know where our body is in space. And then we have our vestibular system that tells us where our head is in space. Okay. And the reason I bring those up is because all of those things are being impacted when you're on a horse. What were you going to, were you going to ask something, Tisa? Yeah, I was, I was in a train of thought, but I might have to come. I might have to think of this question next time. It's, it's so deep, but um, yeah. I what I'm sorry about that. Oh no, um, no worries. No, I just um and I want to make it understandable. And so what I usually tell my students, and this is kind of an oversimplification, okay. but with the sensory input that we are getting from our environment. So um I usually like to say touch. That's a pretty easy one, right? Yep. And so with that, you know, I usually when I ask my students, I'm like, are you a hugger or are you not a hugger? I'm a hugger. Okay. So what that means is in my brainstem, I've got, I pretend that you've got this bucket. Okay. So I've got this giant bucket in my brainstem that says that I need like five hugs a day, at least in order to feel good. Um, if you're not a hugger, then that bucket that you have for that feeling, that tactile input from being hugged, is tiny. So everybody's got their own amount of buckets um, with each sensory system that they are getting input from. Some people want more, some people want less. And so when you work with a kiddo, you have to see, you know, what's their bucket like? Do they like to be hugged? Do they like to, you know, have someone have their hand on their shoulder or does that make them just coil, you know, and so recoil. And so we have to like look at that with each individual. I'm a really fidgety person. So I like to break things a lot. And that's just what my nervous system needs. It needs me to fidget with things. And so um, when we talk about rhythmic writing, you can break it down to vestibular input. And so that is that feeling of knowing where your head is in space and where it's moving. So people that have had trauma, a lot of the sensory inputs that they get are very dysregulated or there's not a lot of um, rhythm to it, right? So if, if my um, partner abuses me or if my you know, caregiver abuses me, there's not usually a rhyme or reason to it. And so it's very um, just sporadic. And Is it so kind of broken? Yeah, it's broken and it's um, inconsistent. Yeah. And so, and what that means is if you are not knowing what sensory um, input is coming at you, and sometimes it can be a dangerous one, most of the time you're going to react to sensory input as if it's something that is really scary. And so you're going to be really on high alert because you can't predict what sensory input you're going to get. So that's why that, you know, dysregulation where you become really emotional, um, really defensive comes in because you have to be to survive. And the anecdote to that is rhythm and really predictable rhythm. And so when a horse can give you that predictable rhythm, 
that calms your brainstem down that calms your body because you're not waiting for this big thing to happen. Um, that's unpredictable because what you're doing at the time is predictable. Would this play a part in that? Um, so the horse is providing the rhythm, you're with the rhythm, yep. but a rider after building that trust with that horse, and we're going through all these steps, mm-hmm. they have to know how to physically kind of control their body to be able to ride and emotionally control themselves. Even when things get heightened and you're scared, maybe to go to a trot, to a lope, you learn those stages to control your breathing, to get to that lope. Yeah. Does does that have any connection with this? Absolutely. And I think that's really important to bring up Tisa because, and it's something that we can definitely prepare and make a safe space for our riders because we can show them with our body. We both have a three-dimensional dynamic movement that a horse We know exactly where their feet are going to go at the walk. It's a four beat gait at the trot. It's a diagonal movement on a two beat gait on the lope. It's a three beat gait. So you can let your riders know exactly what foot is going to be hitting the ground. So they don't feel nervous. Yeah. Right. Okay. One last thing. I I went back to my train of thought, what I was trying to get to about three minutes ago. Okay. So. I don't know anything about this, but a sensory rich environment, when I'm thinking we're just, we're riding the horse, we have that environment where our body's feeling that we have the outside environment, the fresh air, the barn, all these different things. It's an experience Mm -hmm. when children have a sensory rich environment or other individuals in my mind, that would think we're developing our brains. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Is is that connected? Am I saying? Yeah. Elaborate on that. Yeah, and well, back to psychology. So um, there is a psychologist named Piaget who talks about how kids learn through sensory motor experiences. So think about the babies that put things in their mouths when they're first learning about their world, right? The way that we learn from infant to childhood to adulthood is through that trial and error. And a lot of that has to do with sensory rich environments. And so playing in the sand, playing in the grass, playing um, with your blocks outside and seeing how they fall. That's how a kid learns things. Kids learn through play. And we know that when they're um, birth to three years old, their frontal lobe is developing so many new connections and that is all through play. So play is so important for development. And the more sensory experiences you have with that, the more connections your brain has. And so if you think about how kids are in front of screens all the time now, I was just going to bring that up. (laughs) That doesn't count, does it? No, it doesn't because (laughs) you, you don't have your tactile system engaged. You don't have your vestibular system engaged as far as your head moving up and down or forward. Um, If anything, you've got just your visual system engaged and it's not teaching you about the world. Screens don't teach you about the world because you don't have those other senses um, impacted. And we know that the more places that you're getting information from sensory wise, the better that connection in your brain is going to be. There's a reason why smell brings up memory for people. And it's because that's where the olfactory nerve 
is going to be closest to the hippocampus in your brain. So this, your sense of smell is the closest linked to memory. So that's why like when I smell bleach, I think about when I worked on a, at the pool all summer, you know, um, that's just how sensation attaches to our brain and really helps us build different kind of connections and make sense of the world. So we need that. Wow. That's excellent points all the way around. I'm glad we touched on the screens. This, it, this is excellent. Okay. Where are we at Katie? Well, we're getting close. We, I, we have one more question, but I wanted to go off topic just for a second and talk a little bit about that. I know Julie, you've studied also a lot of um, Dr. Perry's work and he talks about what people forget about and the effects of neglect and on the negative psychological impacts that are sometimes larger than a traumatic experience. So could you just brief us a little bit about that and the attachment theory? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to individuals that have had neglect, Dr. Bruce Perry studies this a lot. He's actually from North Dakota. He's a psychiatrist and he has met Oprah before. So like, that's a kind of a big deal. Um, but he wrote a book called what happened to you. Have you guys heard of that one before? Not yet, but I'm writing it down. Okay. So his whole thing is, um, children that have had trauma, um, you know, they often, especially if they've had some physical or emotional trauma, um, they definitely have a defense mechanism where they can have behaviors that are probably not very nice, right? And the world kind of has this whole paradigm of what's wrong with you, what's wrong with you, what's wrong with you? You know, if you're a teenager that is um, really upset and mean to other people, we just say, what's wrong with you? And he kind of wants to shift that paradigm to what's not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. Because so much of our behaviors are learned from experiences that we've had when we were children. And so when he talks about um, bottom-up regulation, what he means is the sensory experiences that we get throughout our childhood really give us kind of a, a schema of how we're going to react to the environment. And so he's a really great pioneer for making sure that your sensory system is really well regulated before you start doing some of the heavier work of psychology um, kind of counseling activities like CBT, those kinds of things. Like going to a formal counselor is great, but you need to have your, your body regulated first. You can't start thinking through and problem solving things with more of your cortex until your brainstem is telling you that you're not in danger all the time. And so he's just great with that. He really gets that we need to look at people a little bit differently and with more compassion. I actually have to do the same thing. So when I, when you first started that and you talked about neglect, mm -hmm. the same thing is in a horse. If it's been neglected, it doesn't run off and be in its own shell. It's actually the one that's going to act up the most. If it's tied up, it's probably going to be the one that's flipping out that you have episodes when you're just walking into a simple place. Mm -hmm. Usually that comes from the horse that's neglected uh, versus the one that's been nurtured. 
its entire life. You don't have as big as episodes. So there's so much correlation between a horse's blood pressure and a, you know, a trauma victim's blood pressure. I guess I'm relating that in my head. Like, wow. Yeah. These are kind of aha things that I'm sure a lot of other people know, but we didn't, I didn't. So thank you for that. It it helps me in the horse training world as well. That's good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Julie, I know we're getting close to the time here, but we just want to always end the show and ask all of our guests, which you have been absolutely amazing. Thank you very much. What is your why? Why do you get up every day, head to the University of Mary, and then go out to the ranch for extra time and help kids and horses? Um, that's a really good question. Um, my why really is, kind of going back to that Bruce Perry quote about what happened to you. um, I really do want to look at people with more of a compassionate lens. um, And I really want to teach others that too. I feel like um, there's just not enough of that. The world needs that. Yeah. And, and one thing I wanted to kind of mention too, um, that has to do with that. Um, have you guys heard of Kevin Hines before? No, mm-hmm. I, I haven't. <laughs> okay. So that's okay. If you haven't, he, um, he's a gentleman that actually, um, he spoke in Bismarck a few years ago at the, um, prevent suicide prevention walk. Um, it's called the out of the darkness walk. He's a, he's a kind of a main speaker on suicide prevention. And the reason he is, is because he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge um, and tried to commit suicide and he lived. And so he talks a lot about that. And one of the things that I think of all the time after seeing him speak or hearing him speak is he said that when he was on his way to the Golden Gate Bridge, he was on the bus and he was just out of sorts. And he said, if one person, like one person on that bus would have said, like, are you okay? Or like said, you know, do you need anything? He could have turned around, you know? And so I think that that's my why is to make sure that I'm, I have my eyes open and that God opens my eyes to see people like that and to make sure that I'm paying attention to others and, and really seeing if, if that's who he wants me to see, you know, and ask if they're okay. I think that's my why is to just have my eyes open to that. You are on that path, Julie. Um, I know this conversation was, it's going to be really um, intricate and deep for a lot of people. If there's any questions, is there any way people could reach out just in particular to you? Or could we add something on the podcast maybe? Yeah, you could add my email on the podcast for sure. Yeah, Yeah, perfect. Just because some of the brain parts and how they correlate, you just never know. Um, And Julie, I think that just brings us to our last and final question. Could we follow up in a month and get a little bit deeper and explain some of these terms now that some of our listeners have figured out like what happened to me maybe Mm -hmm. and we could just take, take another step with this podcast? Yeah, I would love to, I'd love to get deeper into the science of this, um, talk through the neurosequential model that we use for natural lifemanship. Um, I love this stuff. So yeah, I'd love to. 
Awesome. Well, thank you, Julie. I know you're super busy. Um, Tisa, we had a great time. Is there anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? Yes, I just want to say thank you. Thank you, ladies. Um, thank you for helping lives one, one day at a time, mm -hmm. one talk at a time. Every, everything you're doing will, is not wasted ever. Oh, Have a great week. So much. Yeah, Have a great you. week, everybody. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.